Hey Phil. Hey Laurie. Listeners, welcome back to Super Baby Bros in Movie Land, and now we are episode 31 of season 2. Check out my voice. It's back in action. It's, it's fully flowing. Do you know, people got worried. Uh, I was talking to some friends who listen to the show. They got worried because I started the show last week. They were like, what's going on? Really? Well, Phil they thought start I died or something. Yeah, something, they thought yeah. there was some sort of major tragedy or something like that. No, worry not, listeners. I was just unwell, and it was also that I could have that dramatic impact uh, when my voice turned up all gravelly and I could be like a cowboy, but you know. <laughs> I thought it listened quite well well there we are listeners thanks very much for rejoining us we've got new films and old films it's not a video game adaptation special this week after all it's because there were some actually very interesting films to talk about namely kingsman the golden circle mm. a bit of a controversial film in the super bailey bros world well, laurie was not was. a fan of the first one i was a fan of the first one laurie and i have both gone to see that one so we're gonna have a little bit of back and forth on that <laughs> i've also gone to see borg v McEnroe, which is uh shia labeouf and others swedish actors who i can't say the names of <laughs> but i'll be talking about that i went to see that one yeah, and we got what we've been watching back as usual. This time I will manage to fit in Lucky Number Slevin. And if time allows, I've got an ultra short review for Ultraviolet starring Mia Jovovich. Well, I wasn't going to do one, but Laurie says I need to do one because I need to have my little <laughs> slot as well. You're going to pull you away. Even you? though I'm doing Borvi McEnroe as well this week. But I will do something on Changing the Fiction. Now, I have a sneaky feeling that I've already done it on the podcast. Don't think so. Don't think I so. always worry about this. I always think, oh, I've already done that. It's because you talk because about all these different um, films. Spoiler alert, so bland it feels like a bunch of other films. How about uh, that? Shush, shush, shush. Uh, 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 and you've got a little discussion thing for us too. Yeah. Just something silly. Oh, well, something to look out for. And listeners, thank you for being in touch. We've got some of your emails and tweets towards the end of the show. And you never know what other crazy bits of action we might stuff in there. Thank you very much to those on Patreon who supported us with the money. Very appreciated. (laughs) Yes. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash superbaileybros. That page is even more out of date than it was about six months ago. <laughs> so I do apologise. I'm not really I'm not very good at keeping up with that, but you know But you know what it's never out of date, Laurie? What? <laughs> the money. So <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Actually it probably is because they've just done the new ten pound note. Oh, that's true as well, isn't it? I don't, think, I don't think Patreon works in £10 notes. No, anyway, that's look, true. This is splitting hairs. Uh, you can always get in touch with us, listeners, on superbaileybros at gmail.com or at superbaileybros on Twitter. And your thoughts on films play a big part of our show, and we love to hear from you and hear what you're thinking. Any comments on the news, any questions for us, any opinions on films, pluses or minus ones for us, depending on what we've said, send it all our way. Why not tweet to us while you're listening along? That would be great. Now, Phil, as a segue and a kind of Laurie's thought for the episode, I just wanted you to uh, understand that the things we say on this podcast do actually correspond to reality. It may feel sometimes like we're on our own little digital bubble and we can just kind of say things and the rest of the world doesn't doesn't mind or anything like that. Yeah, they float through the galaxy. Yeah. So when I came across this interview from 2014 I, in The Independent, I believe it is, I was slightly shaken because I thought, now there we go. They're a real person. And uh, we shouldn't be so cavalier with our thoughts, because listen to this headline. Clive Owen says, in quotes, emotions are overrated. (laughs) (laughs) I'm more interested in creating a presence. And not only that, Phil, later on... What's uh, a load of rubbish, (laughs) Later on in in the same interview, he says this. According to Clive, I don't do emotion. (laughs) Emotions are overrated. I'm more interested in creating a presence. I've heard people say... I have a dull and monotonous voice. But the truth is that I pull all my effort into communicating to the audience via my eyes. So how does that make you feel, Phil? Well, what a load of rubbish. That's a guy who's clearly identified he's got a weakness and trying to cover it up with paper mache. 
I just heard you think, what a great statement. I don't do emotion. What's he kind of <laughs> what convey? Does that even what's mean? he trying to convey with his eyes? <laughs> yeah, how boring he is, I suppose. That <laughs> You've pre- got to convey emotions. be that. I don't do emotion. I just thought how interesting that is that we pulled it out. But little did we know that Clive Owen himself is a person like us all. Perhaps he's the greatest actor in the world and we just didn't get what he was going for. It could be. So with that in mind, Phil, I'd like you to uh, introduce the show as Clive Owen before we play the jingle. Shall we get on with it? Yes. Look at what they make you listen to. (laughs) (laughs) Right, listeners, place your bets. Who is going to be right about this film? Laurie and I have both gone to see Kingsman, The Golden Circle. Laurie has made it very clear he was not a fan of the first one. Mm. What was your big kind of headline from about the first one? Well, I think that I have to be honest, the way that that came out in the podcast was that you were saying that you really rather liked the original one. And my whole thing was that I actually think it's quite mean spirited. I think... It's a film that wants to subvert everything in a sort of South Parky, uh, Family Guy kind of way. And so watching it isn't that enjoyable because it feels a bit cynical, a bit mean. And when it pushes boundaries, I, can, I feel like I can just see what they're doing. They're just trying to push a boundary to make a point. I think for me, Kingsman, the first one, I saw a lot of promise. I like the idea of the Kingsman, this secret agent force that it works independent from any government. It was sort of a return to the classic Bond japes and capers that he had. Think Sean Connery, think Roger Moore, the sort of over-the-top villains, the exotic world of the spy. And I kind of thought, this is going somewhere. I want to see the sequel. Mm-hmm. So listeners, place your bets. Will Laurie and I agree on this film? Will we, in fact, like this film or dislike this film? I wonder, so let's see at the end of this little review what (laughs) comes out. Yeah, good, good, good. Okay, listeners, I don't know whether you knew this, but Kingsman is based on a comic book series. Did you know that, Phil? Yeah, it is, by Mark Miller, the same guy who did uh, Kick-Ass and other independent comics, and he's worked for Marvel, he's worked for DC, I think, so he's very much in the comic book world. He's quite well regarded, but he does quite sort of explicit, unorthodox stories. A little bit boundary-pushing, so it makes sense that the film was like this. It's just interesting, because I think that fact is quite underrepresented in the general marketing, so if you're like me, listeners, um, and I watched the first one years and years ago before I was doing this show, I just thought it was an original idea that was taking the mick out of James Bond. And that is certainly how Matthew Vaughan, as the director and screenwriter, alongside Jane Goldman as the co-writer, have played it, haven't they? They've made it way more spoofy than the comic book series. Yep, that seems to be the case. And it kind of picks up from where the last film left off. You've got Eggsy back. He is the super spy. The Kingsmen are in full force. They've managed to rebuild after the incidences of the first film. And Eggsy has still got his uh, rather lovely Swedish girlfriend, hasn't he? Yeah, that's right. And that's Eggsy played by Taron Egerton. And he was a little hard nut, hard boiled sort of chap from the streets of London uh, with a bit of a urban accent. Is that the right phrase for that? I guess so, yeah. Yeah, and he got skilled in manners by Mr. Colin Firth, who saw a rough diamond in him. And now we should be seeing some of those rough edges taken off, right? The fact that he has a royal girlfriend at the start of the film and he turns up in a suit doing a death-defying car chase and everything else seems to imply that, doesn't it? Very much so, but then quickly you discover that actually Eggsy is still very much the Eggsy from the street. Still Jenny from the block, mate. Yeah, come on. (laughs) Exactly. He knows his roots. Uh, The basic plot of the film, listeners, is that it seems like someone might be infiltrating Kingsman right from the off, and that may or may not be connected 
to the global leader of the drugs market or something? How does she describe herself? Julianne Moore plays Poppy, and she is basically the head of all drug trafficking in the world. I she think that's is what she the says. most successful businessman there ever was, but because she deals in illegal substances, she's not getting the recognition she deserves, so she has to isolate herself off into some sort of foreign-placed islands in the sort of south. In a sort of weirdly 1950s Americana-themed evil henchman hideout place. Amongst sort of Aztec ruins or that's something. Right. like that poppy's diner and so she is out for a bit of recognition kingsman seem to be going through a bit of a rough patch will those two things meet and can eggsy save the day in the middle of it all they require the assistance of another organization mm. the statesman in which you would find channing tatum and jeff bridges and pedro pascal who you might know from narcos the netflix series and also he was in uh, game of thrones as oberyn martell that's right so I think we can have a clip to sort of set the tone, can't we? Let's have the moment where Eggsy and Merlin, who is played by Mark Strong, doing a vaguely weak Scottish accent, can I say, are trying to get into the Statesman headquarters and they're confronted by Channing Tatum's more sort of uh, country and western style agent. Called Tequila. Mm. You know, my mama, she always told me, us Southerners get our good manners from the British. I was thinking, ain't that a pity? Y'all ain't keeping nothing for yourself. Y'all ain't never heard of knocking for you, Henry. Well, I, actually, we had an invitation, didn't we? Yeah, how did you know? Yeah, yeah, it came in the shape of a bottle. We're from the Kingsman Tailor's Shop in London. Maybe you've heard of us. Oh, the Kingsman? Yeah. Huh. That's where y'all got them fine suits and them fancy spectacles y'all got on. Exactly. That's right. Y'all look damn sharp. Let me see if I got it right here. You want me to believe that it's normal for a tailor to hack through an advanced biometric security system with nothing but a little bitty old watch on? I can promise you. That dog don't hunt. Why don't you go on and get down on your knees and tell me who you really work for? Yeah, now, Phil, I didn't find Channing Tatum's accent very convincing there, I've got to say. No, and he's not really much in the film. He was very much in the trailers and in lots of the uh, publicity, etc. But he is not the star. I say Pedro Pascal plays more of a part in the overall story. Yeah. And he seems to be the one that partners up with Eggsy. He's got his own version of the toolkit that Eggsy had in the first film, except his is a lasso. And uh, he's got a whip as well that he uses with various different gadgets on it rather than an umbrella. That's right. And along the road, we also get Halle Berry turning up as another tech expert, rather like Merlin, but on the uh, American side. And a returning character that you may or may not have expected to see. Now, it is possibly a spoiler, but it's on all the trailers. So probably you've already noticed it. So this is your last chance if you don't want to know. But Colin Firth makes an appearance again as Harry, even though in the last film he seemed to be very much worse for wear. Yes, uh, put out of the picture, as it were. Uh, And his entrance, well, we can come on to that later. Phil, let's do this. Did you enjoy the film? No, I found it really, really boring. Did you really? I was really, really disappointed. Why did you find it boring? I I should say, listeners, it's two hours and 21 minutes and it's a 15 certificate. Go, Phil. So it's two hours and 21 minutes. It's really boring. (laughs) 
unfortunately, there's so many characters that are crammed into this film. I don't know if you heard that, listeners, as we were trying to say all the new additions, all the extra little bits. You've got the statesman, which is a whole interesting part of the story. You've got the inclusion again of Colin Firth returning and the backstory there. You've got the fact that Eggsy's got his life going on with this royal princess. The film is crammed full of ideas, which is great. Love that. Love the ideas. But there's no wisdom in what is necessary for the story. And I think the film ultimately loses focus and is pursuing different threads that don't really come together very well. Interesting. And don't really join up very well. And I found myself often thinking, I don't really care about this story. I'd much rather spend more time with the statesmen and get to know them a bit more and care about them. And it would appear that they're trying to set up a franchise here, so that also would make sense if they want people to stay invested, right? Yeah, and I think that is unfortunately where the problems lie, is that they're wanting to do new things, which is great, but then they're also trying to pull back things that they like from the original, keep their toe on, on that film whilst doing new things. And it just means the film is too stretched. And actually, you could trim it down 20 minutes and focus the story just on the statesman and you get a much better product, in my opinion. So I think this is really interesting, listeners, because I basically disagree with Phil and I enjoyed this film for the most part. I was only bored for some of it, which is better than I expected, especially given its runtime. And what one of the things that added to my enjoyment probably is I didn't have high expectations going in, whereas you obviously did, considering how much you enjoyed the first one. But you see, for me... This just, it confirmed some of my concerns for the first film, but that therefore wasn't a shock to me and it wasn't a surprise. I feel like this second film really lays uh, the Kingsman team's cards on the table in terms of what they were trying to achieve in the first film and what they consider to be their sort of signifying marks. So what you have in this film, again, is the hyper-stylized action that uh, Matthew Vaughan puts together, the director and screenplay writer, which particularly includes rapid shifts of focus and perspective. So someone will punch and the camera will whip round using a sort of bizarre fusion of CGI and stop motion, basically. It's sort of shot. almost a cartoon-like effect, but Comic it makes booking, it... Yeah. it makes the hits a bit more potent, a bit more powerful, and it's sort of exaggerated, isn't it? The but it's a bit disorientating. It's like an action scene in Zero Gravity because the camera moves around so much and so fast that you don't really have any hold on gravity, I don't think. And although the aim might be to do force... Actually, it lessens it. This is what the thing we learned, both you and I, Phil, from Jackie Chan on uh, that uh, amazing YouTube channel, Every Scene of Painting, right? Where in fight scenes, Jackie Chan's whole thing is a camera that allows you to see the whole move. And if you are going to cut, you have a cut that shows the impact twice so that the most important thing coming out of that moment of action is the force of the impact, everything else. Whereas this is not that. This is moving around so much the stuff doesn't really land per se. Do you agree with me? And it's more about the choreography, the swirlingness, the dance of it all. To its it? credit, it's good. It's very stylized and it works. They've achieved it to a consistent standard right the way through the film. And I thought some of the overall sort of structuring and choreography of the action set pieces was really wonderful, especially a scene featuring a giant donut uh, towards the end. Yeah, that was quite fun. I think nice that's probably the best bit of action in the film. Which was tellingly in a lot of the trailers, wasn't it? Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. So that's one side, the stylized action. I think the second thing they've got is pushing boundaries and they do that in two specific ways and i think listeners this slightly shows it up for (laughs) how shallow it really is uh maybe there are three different pushing boundaries number one is when it comes to violence uh or sort of implied threat and in the first film there was the church scene in quotes uh which i think i didn't like at all that was i think your main objection you thought it was just violent but it was distasteful and they knew it was and they knew it was a gimmick and they thought isn't this brilliant and i didn't think it was brilliant this film they've got something similar 
there's a meat grinder being used in the same way that characters in Fargo use a meat grinder. And personally, I found that revolting. <laughs> I d- not in the same way that I hated the Limehouse Golem in a horror film. I understood it was sort of pantomime cartoony and stuff, but I still didn't like it. And I think they pushed it further than other films would do. You have to agree with me on that one, Phil. One yeah, step further. they do. They definitely take it to the, to the maximum extreme of what you could do with that. With that idea. That's but right. But they don't dwell on the violent side of it. It's more the ideas of it, isn't that's it? But that's exactly the same thing. This is what I mean. Pushing the boundary when it comes to violence or sort of evil, that kind of thing. Second one is sexually. So the first Kingsman got a lot of heat for the final scene of the film which implied a specific kind of sexual act and that got loads of controversy this film they have the same thing again except in a different context uh so there's as part of an infiltration mission an explicit sexual act has to be performed but it's interesting because you've highlighted those two things and i want to talk about both of them for different reasons now i often can, gave... I, can I do my third thing and then you can come back to that it's all right because there's okay. a third thing i'll put pause on me <laughs> uh, forget about me i'm just the Let's other person one offline i'm just the other super yeah. bro Right. What okay. have I got to hey, say? Hey, no, but I want you to do it, but I want you to give you, I'll give you all three. Okay. And the third thing is a slightly ham-fisted social message. Uh, this is the sort of other border-pushing thing. And in this case, it's all about drugs. So it turns out there's slightly more to the plot uh, that involves drugs than you'd expect. And it delves into the, dare I say it, Seth Rogen-y, hey, come on, all the cool people love drugs, just a little bit. Oh, what's not going to kill you? That's fine. And it asks you to generally be on board with that, right? Mm. All right there we go, Phil. Go so for those it. are the three things. And I think I agree with you, but I, in different parts and okay, yeah, slightly okay. differently. But on that middle point, the two different things, you've got the, the explicit sexual act from the yep. first film, which lots of people found uncomfortable and a bit awkward. And then you've got this, again, a repeat of that in the second film. Now, the first film, I remember defending it because I thought it was parodying James Bond and and taking the extreme view of that end scene, which is in all James Bond movies where yeah, he's yeah, with yeah. the girl. I think what is awkward about Kingsman Golden Circle is they seem to have taken the controversy of that and tried to sort of do a bit of damage control by having uh, the girl at the end, the disposable girl at the end, in fact end up being a a love interest for Eggsy and she's in the film very presently but she's not very interesting or appealing and doesn't really fit anything else that's going on in the film but it seems to be they're saying oh no no he's not just a crude horrible misogynist he actually cares nor are we we're not not like that we we care about women and that's why she's got a main character but in this film the only other female agent in the film is get taken care of and is gone for the rest of it she's just wasted and then in again in this film the explicit act i think is again trying to parody james bond in the sense that you've got an agent a secret agent having to do something using his seductive skills to achieve an aim but in this context he's got a girlfriend and so he feels a pull and a, a, a challenge about it and so again i think they are trying to parody james bond and put the whole secret agent the lothario in a new context but the film rather than actually running with that idea and saying oh this guy's got morals he doesn't want to cheat on his girlfriend or anything like that they then show in the camera angles and the choice and how they set up the whole scene how their heart is completely in the wrong place and so i felt like this film like you said laurie exposes the 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 makers of this film and Mm. actually rather than having a smart brain which is constantly making fun of james bond and turning on its head yeah actually maybe they're just a bit schoolboyish in how they approach it all well that's the thing and i I say this advisedly listeners because i want to reiterate that on the whole I, i fairly enjoyed this film actually it does slightly lay bare just how gimmicky the stuff is because i think one thing i would encourage you guys to think about if you do go and see it is this is actually really quite a pc film i think this is a film 
that really it's kind of gentle it's very safe in its transgressiveness right because although it would have you think this is really subverting things and really oh pushing boundaries and stuff doing it, awkward hollywood it things does it within a very safe little bubble and it doesn't really push anything that far and actually you know the scenes i mentioned like the violence and the sex stuff and everything else that's all within a sort of allowed framework of stuff and this film the fact that it repeats stuff in exactly the same way i think really lays it bare that all that stuff is just gimmicky it's not clever satire this is basically what you said phil it's not very clever satire it's not thought breaking it's not deep it's more just a kind of a yeah schoolboyish oh we did this can you believe it kind of thing and uh, you know that's not it's not really a point in their favor is it no and i just the first film i enjoyed because there was so much promise in this film i felt like that promise was wasted and yet there's still promise of uh, a possible improvement in the third film i think Possibly. there will be a third kingsman yeah almost guaranteed but they need to do something better with these ideas. They need to actually use them. They need to have a better hat on their head to work out what is necessary, what is useful, what is going to be beneficial to the story. Mm-hmm. And I think rather tellingly, the the villain of this film is such a side character, so not important. You don't know anything about her, yeah. Julianne Moore. She's very sort of over-the-top hammy in her performance, but you have no real motivation to what she wants to do. She is just a businesswoman who sells drugs. There's nothing behind it. And potentially you could say the president is actually the real villain in yeah, air quotes. Sure. But I think that ties in again to that sort of Seth Rogen, uh, drugs are cool guys, everything's fine about them. Yeah. Everyone does them a little bit. And I think... It's a bit it's of a straw man thing that they And produced. it's a little bit soapboxy for a, a film which is about silly spies. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think what I'll give it credit for, Phil, apart from the action sequences, which I think generally are quite interesting and well done. The car scene was fine. I thought the camera was a bit too swirly for my liking overall. But generally, I think I'd praise the quality of the writing. I thought the dialogue was fairly good. And especially when it comes to Taron Egerton, I think he's good, isn't he? He's a good lead. And I kind of believed his street lingo and suaveness a lot more than I expected to. And I think that's not just his ability, but the writers are fairly well in sync. I think Jane Goldman is maybe better as a co-writer on the strength of what she managed in The Limehouse Golem. Mm. I don't know. For me, ultimately, I would say it has so many things that could work really well, but they distract it all. And it just meant that I was bored and I was disappointed. That was my main takeaway. So for me, the grade would probably be a B minus. But I think I still would see a Kingsman 3. Yeah, I'd give it a B. I think it's fine. I think it's fairly enjoyable. It's got a, not a bad cameo, although the, the amount of times that cameo is employed... Far too overused. Uh, ...was t- reminding me more of Absolutely Fabulous, the movie, <laughs> than a sort of uh, Hollywood blockbuster thing. Uh, any notes on special effects, like the robot dogs and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, I can. again, they're trying to do that sort of cheesy Bond thing. I thought it didn't really work. It mm-hmm. was a bit silly, and annoyingly, it, it didn't... Even though it's a ridiculous thing having a robotic dog as a sort of uh, henchman, it was there was no logical reason why it wasn't they would much work. Oomph, was there? No, they were just sort of this weird transformer, like mechanical-looking thing. But there's no sense of how they worked or anything like and that. Not so much the, part of the story. No, no reason why she really had. Them, yeah, it was they a were bit called Benny and Jet, weren't they? Like Benny yeah. and Jets. That was good. Uh, a final note on performances, Phil, because I thought Mark Strong was good in this, even though I don't particularly rate his Scottish accent. Actually, he. It's a good bit of foresight from the casting directors that he could play that role as well as he does because he's normally someone who has more dramatic heft one way or the other, uh, you know, either a quite a bad guy or quite as a light guy. comedic sidekick. He's sort of right down the middle because think about his role in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, who's very different in that. Mm. Uh, and then even Stardust, uh, which is directed by the same director, he was sort of a comic bad guy. I, I liked him in this and I thought. Taron Egerton was good. Uh, I thought Jeff Bridges was fine in his almost cameo role. Uh, Halle Berry was fine. They didn't give very many other people many things to do, but bad in the film, I think we both agree, was Colin Firth. 
just isn't needed. Just get rid of him. Take rid of that whole baggage of character and storyline and focus on the statesman. I didn't I didn't really know the American characters, even though the whole thing that I thought this trailer was promising was oh, go see the American side of the Kingsman. That's mm-hmm. the whole plan. Have a bit of interplay about how they're American, you're British, and all the kind of tension there. But they didn't, they wasted it. They just threw it out of the way because they wanted to have Colin Firth in. And what a waste. You already had his character dealt with. Yeah, it's interesting, wasn't it? Okay, Phil, give us a summarising line from your point of view. I think I'd do kind of teacher thing. Disappointed could do better. Oh, nicely done. And I'm going to say lighthearted fluff that thinks it's edgier than it is. There we go. Uh, that's Kingsman, the Golden Circle. Right, Phil, you cannot be seriously about to review this film. Oh, you stole my joke. Sorry, uh, no, guys. No, really, was that going to be yours? <laughs> it was going to be something like that. You cannot be serious. I'm going to have to read all these Swedish names. Listeners, this is going to end badly. That's better. Well done, Phil. But obviously, they're not all Swedish because Tom Hiddleston's in this film, isn't he? <laughs> it's not Tom Hiddleston, Laurie. What? Just because he looks but like I've him. I've seen the posters. No, I've it's seen not. the trailers as well. That's oh, Tom Hiddleston. Oh, oh, oh. Listeners, I've had that joke far too many times today already (laughs) i'm pleased with it so this is a film about bjorn borg and john mackenroe their legendary rivalry the superstars of tennis of the day and their first meeting in wimbledon and all the media attention all the tension between the athletes it is a rumble in the jungle but it's actually on some grass yeah in white shorts and with a lot of politeness as laurie said there are a lot of swedish people in this film they're gonna have some names which i will not be able to pronounce so i apologize up front (laughs) That's just my weakness as a as a presenter. I don't think it's a weakness at all, Phil. If football pundits can get the same name wrong for five years in a row and still be paid the thousands and thousands of pounds they are paid to appear on Match of the Day, I think you've got nothing to worry about, my friend. Okay, fine. There we are. I'll power on through. You have the names which I can say is Shia LaBeouf. Mm, that might not even be right. <laughs> I just, suddenly I thought that as well. Oh no, I've said that one wrong. Yeah, we know who he is. Go he for it. He is Jean McEnroe. Jean. And then also you've got Stellan Skarsgård as Bjorn Borg's coach. You've got a newcomer to me, but probably a legend in Sweden, Sverre Gudnason. Sverre Gudnason. Yeah, I don't know, Phil. He right. plays the adult Bjorn Borg. And he is Tom Hiddleston, right. He looks like Tom Hiddleston. You also got a lady who looks very much like Naomi Rapace or Rapace, but Is that she's Tuva not. Novotny? Yes, yes. She honestly, there's something about the cheekbones that just makes yeah, it. Yeah, I'm checking out the headshot. Very... You're right, Phil. It's yeah. exactly like that. Those are pretty much the only actors in the film. You've got Bjorn's coach, his girlfriend. You've got Shia LaBeouf. Those are really the only characters that feature and impact on this story. This film is brilliant, listeners. I loved it so much. Oh, brilliant. I realise I haven't said, here's a trailer or here's a clip. So let's get the clip out of the way and then I'm going to delve in and say why it's so good. In this clip, you get a little bit of a flavour of the tension and the rivalry that this film is so concerned with. Here is Shia LaBeouf as John McEnroe being interviewed by Johnny Carson on an, a late night show discussing the build-up to Wimbledon. Man, the uh, New York Times described as being the worst representative of American values since Al Capone. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, John McEnroe. <laughs> so, John, uh, you uh, upset anybody out in the wings yet? No, not that I know of, not yet. <laughs> no, I, I like you, John. Uh, you're great. And um, in three days... Three days. You're going to London yep. uh, to play Wimbledon. And everyone's talking about Bjorn Borg's chance to win his fifth straight title and make tennis history. Now, apparently, uh, the only thing standing between Borg and that record is you. Mm-hmm. Well, here's what the 
And it's saying over in London where uh, you're hardly making any friends. <laughs> uh, John, I'm, I, I gotta ask you, what is it that you've done to the Brits? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's just a different place, you know? It's a different culture and they have warm beer and it's just a different thing. Well, have you, uh, have you got a plan to uh, get them to stop booing? I mean, I plan to go in there and play my game. And if I beat Borg in the final, it's very hard to boo me if I'm number one, so. Well, here's what the press here is saying. I can be anybody's nightmare, though, you know. But I guess I wouldn't be exaggerating if I were to say that uh, you and Borg are as different as two people could possibly be. You keep going back to Borg. Is he backstage or something? Is he gonna, like, jump out of the cave? I feel like we keep talking about him. You know, I'm here. Um, we're, the interviews, here we are. It's just that Borg is often described as being pure perfection and uh, zero emotion. Do you think he ever loses it? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, can I say to you, Phil, that is slightly more serious in turn than I was expecting. But maybe that is kind of the film's point, because John McEnroe is very present in the media to this day, and he comes across as a bit more of a cuddly, jovial figure that we all kind of like and Sue Barker chuckles and has tea with. Right, exactly. He's the commentator on Wimbledon. He's the, the bad boy of tennis who's all nice and friendly and writes books now and says, oh, come on, Andy, you can do it. But this is more like a sort of Floyd Mayweather or whatever, like, proper serious thing. It's like a bout, isn't it? It's like a boxing match, and which is fantastic because it gets you right into the mindset that this was a major, major rivalry. This is Nadal versus Federer. This yeah. is a massive collision of two of the best people of the day. And they could not be more different and yet the same. And this film, it spells out so wonderfully that that is the case. Shia LaBeouf is brilliantly cast as this sort of ratty, slightly dweeby, nerdy, brash, horrible New York brat. <laughs> who's brilliant at tennis. He's got this ferocious competitiveness who ex- and, and his emotion explodes on the tennis court. He has these outrageous bursts. You cannot be serious is, is probably one of the more yeah, tamer, tamer things he said on the court. And in this film, it's definitely the tamest thing he says. <laughs> and he's got this horrible reputation. He's this ugly part of the tennis game versus Bjorn Borg, the calm, cool, handsome Swedish guy with his flowing locks who's Always cool, always brilliant. He's described as perfect. Tell me they called him Bjorn the Cyborg at some point. No, it doesn't come up at all. I think it's more like the Iceman. He's so cool, so calm, so collected. And this film paints the reality that, in fact... The men are very much the, the, the same sort of man, but just expressing it in a very different way. Different culture, different exterior, that kind of thing. Exactly. John McEnroe is young, he's up and coming, he's volatile. Bjorn Borg is the established legend who, under the surface, is bristling with emotion, and yet he is calm and collected on the tennis court. Yeah, but this brilliant. film takes a long time to establish him as a character who's very nervous, he's on the cusp of being defeated, not on the court, but in his mind. Well, so based on what well, our experiences of John McEnroe, he's very loud, he's very present in the media, carry on. I've never seen Bjorn Borg interviewed, I don't think. The fact that this is a Swedish production with a mainly Swedish cast, is it more focused on Borg than McEnroe? No, and that's why I think this film is so good. It is so equally balanced. Right. And you have this almost mythic quality to this match in that these men don't meet for so long in the film. They are just aware of each other. They're swirling around, gradually moving towards each other in this tournament. And 
it is wonderfully balanced, actually. I'd say it is slightly more weighted to Bjorn Borg and his mindset, but there's enough of Shia LaBeouf, his character, his background, what's going on with his life, his attitude, mm. yeah, yeah. that you feel like you, you care about these two characters. And probably it's not really reflective of what these men are exactly like. I would say it's very much kind of like the, the social network of Wimbledon. It takes it seriously and it uses this story, this rivalry, as an opportunity to really tightly explore the the psychology of sportsmen the psychology of ambition of doubt of insecurity of wanting to be the greatest and what would what would it mean if i wasn't the greatest it just takes you on such a lovely journey which is shot beautifully performed wonderfully and is really well conceived in the scenes that are included it it doesn't spell it out for you and yet it feels so obvious Nice. And that's that's down to brilliant filmmaking, it has to be said, I think. And it, I mean, in the clip that you showed us, even though it was a talk show, we didn't get any actual wide angle talk show shots. It was all handheld from the different wings of the stage. Is that representative of the camera work? Is it kind of te- frenetic, tense, that sort of thing? I think it's brilliant. It's almost like a psychological thriller. Right. Bjorn Borg, he, he feels so enclosed. He's, the Got camera it, yeah. is so claustrophobically around him. He feels so alone, even though he's surrounded by his teammate. Uh, his uh, coach and his uh, soon-to-be wife, they just feel like they're not really there. It just feels so focused. Tunnel vision. On... But that's great because that's a sportsman, isn't it? That's, that's what that, it is yeah, and, yeah, and it deal. sets you into a nice. mindset and you cool. feel like you want space. The crowds are so in love with Bjorn Borg and he seems to be constantly trying to get away from them, find some space, find some solitude. And yet at the same time, he's crying out for help because he's doubting himself. He's wondering, am I good enough? Is this the kid that gets rid of my legacy? Yeah, he makes right. me not the best because he's... This is, in case you're not aware of Bjorn Borg and, and John McEnroe, this is at the point where Bjorn is going for his fifth consecutive Wimbledon title, which has never been done before at this point. Oh, wow. And so he's, there's one point in the film where he says, nobody will remember me if I lose this one. They'll just remember me as the guy who lost this match. Tough one. And whereas John McEnroe has his buddy say to him, the thing is, John, you might win, but nobody will like you, so you'll never be one of the greats. Oh, how about that? That's and cool, man. It's such, it's such a good little character That's study. That's a good point on the social network. I can see that working out. You, you yeah. see what I mean? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yet it's not just one character you're focusing on. You're focusing on two, and you know that they can't, there's, there's going to be an impact. They're going to conflict. They're going to collide. And you're sort of reading for them both and also seeing them as kind of sad and alone figures in their pursuit of greatness. That, that's quite a trendy and popular way to present sports people. And they probably aren't. You hope anyway, they're not too sad and lowly in real life, but it makes for a better film, I suppose. My other question for you, Phil, is how much of the film is the match itself? Because typically I find those parts the most boring because they don't correspond that well to the language of film and it is interesting because the way that tennis matches the films on tv is a static shot you tend to see from the almost bird's eye view don't you maybe with some instant replays if you've ever been to Wimbledon as you and I have it feels very different when you're courtside because it feels a lot faster and more energetic to see these guys do their thing and and then if you think about that Wimbledon film with Geoffrey Chaucer and uh, <laughs> his name again Paul Bettany and Kirsten Dunst the way they film that is just fake isn't it like it doesn't feel like tennis at all so what I have think they done? it's it's a mixture of being brilliant and not at all related to tennis as well right okay tennis is almost not really the focus of the film it's just a a thing in the background but they do get to that big final Wimbledon match and they do show lots of it in in a kind of expressive way it's impressionist in what it says it's not about so much the score but it is about the 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 feeling the power the exchange of mental battles and it shows 
some really lovely shots from above. It just shows one side of the court in a God's eye view and you just watch them run around hitting back balls. That's quite cool. And what I have to say is the sound design is so brilliant in this film. Maybe it was the cinema I was in, but there was something about the way the balls sounded when they were getting hit. It was like gunshots. It was wow, like a, cool. It was like a gunfight and they're just blasting off at each other. It nice. just felt shocking and tense. And you know, I didn't really realise why, but my heart was sort of building up to tension. And I couldn't quite remember who won the match. Okay. And so there was a tension there. Now, listeners, you might know your tennis very well, and maybe that will take away. If that is the case, email in. I'd love to hear from you. But for me, I didn't really know. I knew that something about these two characters and where they stood and, and where they eventually ended up in Wimbledon stakes. But I didn't know with this particular match where it fitted in on the timeline. And so I went in not really knowing where it was going to end. And that helps, you think? One of the the big, big, big flaws of this film, and I mentioned it to you yesterday, Yeah, you said Laurie. there was something that you just wish wasn't there or something. There's yeah. a bit where a tiebreaker comes up. Right. And then there's a, a commentator who explains very clearly what a tiebreaker is. <laughs> and you're like, oh my goodness, you've gone through the, all this effort of this tension, this uh, ever-increasing thing which is about the psychology of these men, not about the tennis. And then you have the most on the nose that explanation yeah. audiences just in case you didn't know this is why this is happening right and now and this is why it's tense and the right. thing is is they don't care about the tennis so why are you make why is it suddenly about how tennis is scored well you never know Phil I mean that might have been a producer overruling and saying no no we just have to have this here but they really didn't because it doesn't even matter in the context of this story Interesting. what matters is the fact that these guys are going at it all out and there's there's points where one of them's ahead and one of them's behind and and that's what's exciting that's what's dramatic and also sorry i'm getting very excited that's right, about go, this go do it there's the best little end of end of the film true story stuff oh uh, the black uh, black screen white text love it i love it it was so good <laughs> a couple of really nice little photos oh great i just thought it was great i think the casting was really good i think the performances are really good i think the structure of the the story is really well told and i loved one thing i'll say last to wrap it up the thing which i really loved is that this is a film that takes place in the 80s and it's got a really lovely 80s aesthetic but the way it's shot is so modern and the the colors the close-ups the camera work everything about it is making it so much more engaging than just a simple sort of biography of these two men brilliant well phil i mean i feel like i can predict your grade Uh, so my final question for you is are there any reasons not to see this film and are there any people this is not for eg certificate uh, it's. I think it's a fifteen. I believe, but Is mostly language, mostly language. A little yeah. bit of uh, nudity. Sure. Uh, I think it would probably bore some people who aren't really interested in psychological studies and. Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to say, but I wouldn't be put off if you're not a fan of tennis. In some ways, it makes it more enjoyable because you don't know where it's going to go. I think it is quite nice having a little bit of background and having that picture of John McEnroe as, as he is now. Mm. Uh, I think it really contributes because you get to see what he was like then and it really paints a picture very well of what he nice. was like then. What's the grade? I'm going to give it an A. I loved it. I thought it was great. Um, perhaps slightly too slow. Okay. Just ever so slightly. Uh, apart from that tiebreaker scene though, I was having a great time. Nice. All right. Well, that sounds like the one to watch this week. If you weren't that bothered about Kingsman, go watch this instead. Yeah, check it out. I wonder if it might be a film that comes up for Oscar stuff with sound design and, and production values and all that sort of stuff. Maybe it'd be a foreign film. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, that'd be interesting. Laurie, have you learned that song? Yeah. 
that's the wrong key but it doesn't matter <laughs> what is the right key it's too high let's not, let's not do this I absolutely love that song Kiss from a Rose by Seal and I can guess why you brought it up Phil why have I brought it up Laurie because that was the marvellous soundtrack and music video to one of the Batman films was it yeah the, I think it was the Val Kilmer one Batman Forever or something like that I thought George, maybe it's the George Clooney one maybe no it was. I think it's the one with Val Kilmer it's also got uh, Two-Face uh, Tommy Lee Jones as Two-Face there and Jim Carrey as a uh, something like that. Basically, it was one of the Batman films. And you think, that's such an epic, beautiful sort of great dramatic ballad. Yeah. And yet here it is for Batman. But the thing is, when I was a kid and that was on TV, the Batman thing only enhanced the mystique of the song to me because I hadn't seen the Batman film. I think I might have been too young. They were like 15s at the time, weren't they? Yeah, so it felt all quite powerful and stuff. Now, why have you drawn our attention to this? I just suddenly had a thought. I was listening to that song as I was going to work, listeners, and... I had a thought, there aren't really movie songs anymore like they used yeah. to be. And I was thinking about Will Smith because uh, I listened to Men in Black on the way home. Wicked Wawa. Jim West. Desperado. Rough Rider. No, you don't want nada. Okay, keep going. Yeah, he used to do some absolute tunes for his movies. And they're just not happening anymore, partly because Will Smith has slightly gone off the boil. He doesn't really do music at all anymore, does I'm he? I'm trying to wonder if he ever did a song for After Earth. <laughs> <laughs> it would have to be a really slow, dreary ballad, wouldn't it? After Earth. Something like that. <laughs> Terrible film. But yeah, why is that not happening? I kind of miss it. Uh, there were so many of these big songs, really, really, really big songs that are kind of legendary now, who were that were written for a film. Ghostbusters? Okay, yeah, that, Ghost... is that the one that kickstarted it all? Really, I don't know really, but I mean the ones which spring to mind. I don't want to miss a thing by Aerosmith. Yeah, which from was again. For, yeah. yeah, exactly. The Bodyguard with "I Will Always Love You," Whitney, Whitney Houston. Houston. Yeah. That was a huge song. You've got "Wet, Wet, Wet" with "Love Is All Around Me." Oh, what for? Love Actually? Dun, dun, dun. Not lo- um, no. It's for uh, four weddings and a funeral, wasn't was it? Was that the one? Oh, I, I didn't feel know that. It in my fingers, and Ooh. then they redid it for "Love Actually" with "Christmas Is All Around Me" with Bill Nye. That's a good one. Yeah. Well, I wonder. I mean, the most boring answer, but possibly the most accurate one, Phil, is likely to be that there's not as much money in the CD business as there used to be. So, I mean, that's why Disney, back in the day, always used to immediately release a soundtrack album with a different singer singing the songs from the films and rearranged as well because album sales were big. But people don't really do CDs so much anymore, maybe. No, but you think with iTunes or whatever, there'd be a big song that goes along with the release of the film. And, of course, James Bond is, I think, the only film franchise that is really doing that anymore. Yeah, although they've had some, you know troubling tunes up, to and, say the up least. and down isn't it up and down you got Madonna with Die Another Day that's terrible I can't handle that song it's when she goes Sigmund Freud analyse this I just want to die inside are you going to be able to play some clips of these songs I'm always getting nervous about like proper licensed tracks that you can buy because you know the copyright software doesn't doesn't like it when you do that I think it's fair use but fair use is only an argument after you've been charged so oh really okay. yeah, did you not know that <laughs> no so I didn't let's not do that <laughs> you'll have to just pick them in your head or maybe you and I should just sing them Phil that'll do it oh no I, I always like the Sheryl Crow one for Tomorrow Never Dies but maybe I shouldn't sing that to pierce people's ears it's, uh, it's a good one is that your absolute favourite of the Bond uh, theme songs I might be up there, yeah. I mean, a lot of people talk about Goldfinger and some of the earlier ones. Uh, I find them a little bit cheesy. They're I quite fine. like uh, Goldeneye by the uh, Tina by the Tina Turner. <laughs> that is quite good. That's true. It's got the nice eighties, uh, horn stabs. That's true. Yeah, it possibly speaks also to just a different age of films where they were a much bigger cultural event because you just need to look at Netflix, right, uh, to see the way that films are just a different currency nowadays, and so it's not the same shared experience that it once was and what people want more than to prolong the cinema experience because that's one of the other things you would do right you go to cinema and you love the film and you'd want the soundtrack 
to carry on enjoying like the transcendent experience of being there uh, but now not so much because what people really want to do is write tweet tweets and stuff about the film or use the <laughs> <Do> hashtag <podcasts. laughs> or yeah do podcasts yeah exactly no that's true or you know check out youtube things or you know so the, it's sort of moved on what culture actually wants from the cinematic experience is a little different now but do you think that maybe is a mark of the fact that film scores just aren't really big as as they were? They're not as characterful. We've had this conversation, haven't we? Like guys like John Williams, they made their money out of melodies, really, and so you would remember and recognise themes. I, you know, I think cinema is. We've already talked about this ad nauseum, Phil. Much the poorer for its lack of themes, and everyone's going down the uh, the textural route using guys like Hans Zimmer and Co. to just create a mood and atmosphere. Soundscapes. So you're, you're hard pressed to really pick out themes in the way that you used to. I mean, Star Wars. That music will just be used forever because it was some of the strongest theme writing there's ever been. And ET, right? Like everyone, you know that song. Well, listeners, I just felt suddenly very sad thinking, oh, these are some absolute banging tunes yeah. that I'm listening to as I'm driving to work. And I just don't see it really happening. I think the last film, other than James Bond, to have a song that really broke out and became a big hit probably was actually Fast and Furious. You know, the one um, after Paul Walker. Died. Oh, right. Yeah, no, that was huge. I'll that see was absolutely. I think it's like the smash. biggest, biggest yeah. song ever on YouTube or something like that. That's right. I'll see you again or something like that. That I mean, that's a great little synergy right there of uh, a hugely, like, globally popular franchise and a song that, I mean, I don't think the song is that great on its own terms, but, but it, it hit the nail on the head in terms of what it represented. And that context of that film and everything And like it's that. interesting that the metric he used there, Phil, what was it? It wasn't album sales. It was YouTube views. So yeah. that's that's my that's the major reason I think they wouldn't invest. But listeners, let us know your thoughts. And in particular, I want to know any songs that you absolutely love from films and you always tie to the film experience. And also any songs that you think would really go well with a film. <laughs> yeah, that'd be like, funny. Could you imagine a film using another song like just a Justin Bieber song or whatever? Yeah, well, uh, uh, JT man, trolls. Oh yeah, come on! That's Can't the thing you like the, the most. That's a great tune. But that as was well. such a good song in its own, in and of itself. I can't believe it was wasted. On I'm that pretty film. sure that is my son's song. We tried to give our kids a song that's riding high on the charts, and I think that was the one. For oh, him. there you go, trolls. That's a good man. Right, let's hope he becomes a little mini J to eat. <laughs> Not really. All right, listen. Let us know. Superbellybros at gmail.com at superbellybros on Twitter. Right, what we've been watching. Uh, I've got sort of two films, but one of them is going to be so short it barely counts. That is Ultraviolet, and then I'm going to do Lucky Number Slevin. And Phil, you're going to do? Ranger Than Fiction. Let's start with Ultraviolet. Hello, my name is Violet. My name is Violet. I was born into a world you may not understand. May not understand. May not understand. Let me start at the beginning. Everything changed when a government lab discovered a virus that caused genetic mutation. They used it to create faster and stronger soldiers. The problem was we became a threat. I want them hunted down and killed. Get on the ground on your knees! We've managed to eradicate almost all of them. Almost all of them. Those of us that survived extinction started fighting back. You are compromised, destroy. Copy that. They made her a weapon. Killing is what I do. It's what I'm good at. They made her a target. The humans want me. You jeopardize everything by coming here. I don't have any place left to go, Garth. Besides, you have all my guns. In the final days of mankind's greatest war. This is pure suicide. No one but you could have put this up. She will decide their fate. Oh. 
Are you mental? Come and get it. Projection disruption. Why are you doing this? Because I hate humans. You used to be human. But not anymore, right? I got sick and now I'm something worthy of extermination. You won't make it out of this complex of life. Watch me. My name is Violet. I was born into a world you may not understand. Ultraviolet. Mm, yeah, conspicuous use of one of the iconic soundtracks from The Matrix in that trailer. Did you pick up on it? I did. I've used that song in a media studies trailer it's I did when I was a kid. It's a beautiful piece of music, that one, isn't it? A really nice ascending string riff and stuff. Stuck in my head for a long time afterwards. Um, I think they're, you know, unsubtly uh, trying to imply this film might have some kind of parallel with The Matrix. <laughs> Listeners, let me say to you, if you want to see a bad film, you can absolutely know it's bad and you can take notes on its badness. This is your film. This is just awful. Kurt Wimmer wrote and directed it. He had some success with Equilibrium, which he also oh, directed. Yeah. Christian Bale film that I, I also personally don't like. A lot of people think of it as a guilty pleasure. He's also a screenwriter behind the Total Recall reboot and Salt. So not a great recommendation. This film Generic is... Generic action. Yeah, dystopian. They're sort of vampire-like beings uh, and there's companies trying to eradicate them from the bloodline, but they don't want to be you know, gotten rid of. So there's all kinds of fighting and conflict and stuff this film is just awful it's awful 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 it's filmed like it's a pop video the color scheme and the cgi work is embarrassingly sort of oversaturated and amateur looking the script is beyond laughable it is boring you can forgive it if it was an hour and 10 minutes and had been snappily edited to give it pace nothing there nothing about this film works at all so i say it again if you want to see a bad film this is your film and milia or mia jovovich as your lead actress unfortunately not a good choice in this case. She can do some things brilliantly, not this, as it turns out. And the last thing I'll say on it, Phil, is uh, as a good example of a director trying... He's obviously not a director by stock and trade, right? And he, this must be him branching out. An example of what he was trying to do and the way that he tried to make it exciting is that during a fight scene on a rooftop where a person with a sword takes out, I don't know, 20 guys with guns, uh, not, <laughs> they go, do that thing where the camera zooms into reflective sunglasses and then comes out the other side, right? <laughs> not just once, but something like three or four times. So it oh, goes through no. one guy's pair of sunglasses and then another and then another. And they're just like, oh, no. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, like I say, if you ever want to know what a bad film looks like, Watch this. Terrible 2006. It's a D. It's rubbish. Is it's, it that bad? It's boring as well as just poor. Was there nothing redeemable? No, you've got to watch. I want you to see it. And <laughs> I, and you, I, I know that it's, feeling. It's almost like a challenge. It's like a can you not switch this off? Because it is a waste of your time. <laughs> Are you saying lay it down as a gauntlet to our listeners? Can yeah, you watch Can you watch film? it without switching it off? It's There's your challenge. And that's why what I've been watching for Ultraviolet. <laughs> can I throw in another challenge as well? Yeah. Somebody watch Public Enemies, that Johnny Depp film, and tell me it's good. I, I bet I've you I've heard can't. people say that it's good. Film. Oh, it's so bad. I bought it for our dad to watch just so that somebody else would agree with me how bad it is. Oh, really? I wanted somebody else to see it just to say how boring and turgid and horrible it is it's interesting because i remember this is we should have done this phil as well maybe i should say this as a discussion topic because i remember talking to our dad once when i was quite young i wanted him to put a bad film on for us without telling us that it was bad so that i could know what a bad you film get your critic. Like. it's true i really like this is when i was really quite young i was only about 12 <laughs> or something i wanted to have my um your barometer of, set yeah 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 i wanted to be orientated correctly and i don't know whether he ever took me up on that <laughs> nervous that maybe i missed it <laughs> anyway yeah, you weren't good enough you failed yeah well exactly uh, let's do that some other time that's an interesting topic we'll scribble that one down ooh, ooh. uh lucky number 11 shall i do it yeah let's move on to lucky number 11 here's the proper one kansas city chef there's a lot of people people connected only by the slightest of events then why don't you just go ahead and give me your wallet am i being mugged <laughs> that is how these affairs begin 
cats in town. Good cat? Who's good cat? He shows, people die, he vanishes. What are you looking for? This is our guy, Nick Fisher. Who is he? Just a loser. Boss wants to see you. Who's the guy we work for? I'm not the guy you're looking for. I don't live here. Yeah, well, you look like the guy that lives here. Then you don't know what the guy that lives here looks like. What he means to say is you look like you live here. Yeah, that's what I mean to say. Sorry. What happened to your nose? It's a very long story. I think it's time you told me that story. Well, there's this guy that called the boss. I'm sorry, who are you? I'm the boss. They picked up the wrong guy. Wrong guy for what? Whatever it is you want to see me about. Do you know what I want to see you about? No. Then how do you know I have the wrong guy? And then right across the street lives this man they call the rabbi. Why do they call him the rabbi? Because he's a rabbi. Hmm. Shlomo wants to see you. I don't know anyone named Shlomo. If someone named Shlomo knows you. How do you justify being a rabbi and a gangster? Killing you before you killed me would have been kosher. Friends of yours? Not exactly. Where's my money? I'm not Nick Fisher. And who the hell are you? I'm just a guy who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. You're getting good at this. Nice. <laughs> I'm paying you a lot of money to kill somebody. A world-class assassin. Don't worry, I'm gonna kill somebody. I was just thinking that if you're still alive when I get back from work tonight, maybe we could go to dinner or something? Mm, Groovy, 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 wouldn't you say, Phil? Mm, I've seen this film. Have you? Mm. Interesting. Well, listeners, this is directed by Paul McGuigan, who's not done an awful lot, so there you go. It's written by a guy called Jason Smilovich. Also, you might not be familiar with the name, but he wrote War Dogs, Phil, which you recently saw. Oh, yeah. Jonah Hill and uh, what's-his-face, Miles Teller. Mm. You weren't a big fan of that, were you? I know I quite enjoyed it, but I thought it was slightly bad taste. Okay, interesting. I mean, listeners, this is basically the Big Lebowski meets Pulp Fiction, kind of. This is a case of mistaken identity. Josh Hartnett plays a guy called Slevin, who appears to be mistaken for a guy called Nick Fisher. Some mobs turn up and they say, well, you're Nick and you earn loads of money. And because he can't prove that he isn't Nick Fisher, because someone nicks his wallet, he gets wrapped up into this weird sort of underground world of crime. And there are people who want money from him or there are people who want him dead. And he's being continually pressured into doing underhanded things, even though it appears to all be a case of mistaken identity. He just can't prove it. And along the way, he meets Lucy Liu, who is his a sort of flatmate next door, although it's not his flat, so it's slightly confusing. He meets Morgan Freeman, who is a crime boss. He also meets Ben Kingsley, who's a crime boss. And Bruce Willis makes sort of odd appearances throughout the film, as does Stanley Tucci, who's playing a police chief as well, who gets wrapped up. There's this odd sort of crime story, lots of people going missing or things going missing or money going missing. It's a big, confusing mess, and it is meant to be a big, confusing mess with Josh Hartnett's Slevin in the middle of it all. So I've got to say, highlights for this film, Phil, come in the shape, just two highlights, really. Josh Hartnett, he's a really good lead actor. I was yeah, really he was, surprised. He's, he's not really been in anything. Well, and that was interesting. It made me look him up and stuff. And he, apparently he turned down the role of Batman Begins. He was going to be Bruce Wayne. Can you believe that? That's As opposed to Christian Bale. And he also turned down Superman Returns, where he could have been Superman. And he apparently didn't want to get shoehorned. In Spider-Man, I think he was going to be in as well. He got he removed himself from all this stuff and made some enemies in Hollywood. And he ended up doing a lot of indie films as well. And I wouldn't be surprised if something to do with his personal life 
life got in the way. And now he's well. that sort of Peaky Blind, uh, not Peaky Blinders, one of those. A Penny Dreadful. Penny Dreadful, yeah, yeah. TV show where he plays a Cockney chap. But it's interesting because if you've seen Pearl Harbor, which is his big film role. With Ben Affleck. That's and, right. You uh, would probably instantly assume this is just a typical Hollywood throwaway heartthrob sort of guy. But this film proves that he really isn't. He he really is on top of it and he's really compelling and he doesn't come across like just a pretty boy lead guy at all even though he is like a sort of ridiculously handsome chiseled dude he's sort of uh, Ashton Kutcher meets Jake Gyllenhaal yeah something like that and it's just so strange like he was he must have been an incredibly hot talent at the time with a film like this under his belt so big credit to him that he can hold a film like this which is so sort of labyrinthine and messy and it's got such heavy hitters as Morgan Freeman and Ben Kingsley in it I mean seriously they are big actors and he's brilliant in it and also Lucy Liu I actually really liked it's the only time I've ever liked Lucy Liu in a film because she plays someone who's kind of believable I believe that she can do her job I believe she's intrigued in Seven in this way and I believe she's got this kind of hyperactive sort of over-the-top personality I liked her in the film and I was surprised by it I didn't really like very much else I'd liken the sort of directing style to a wannabe Steven Soderbergh because, I mean, the soundtrack there communicates it. It's trying to be quite groovy and quite cool, using a lot of dark, grainy film stock and slightly sort of obfuscated angles, so you very rarely feel like things are open or the Orwell orientated in It's anything. super stylized, basically. Yeah, and like the uh, people have commented on this already, but the wallpaper within all the rooms that they're in is sometimes too much to take. It's almost like an optical illusion. Everything is very sort of vibrant and trying to be very cool. But the script is not really up to snuff. It's really working hard to try and be Quentin Tarantino-y. I think it's, it's, not it's like enough. Guy Ritchie, but the American version. Well, it, the reason it's ended up at Guy Ritchie is I think that's what happens <laughs> when you try and be... <laughs> when, when you, you try, try and be Quentin Tarantino and you miss it, you end up but this, Guy this Ritchie. This is why I say it's also a bit like uh, The Big Lebowski because there's that kind of slacker element to it, for a while at least anyway, where things just happen randomly. Coen brothers That's their stock and trade, right? This stuff just happens out of nowhere with quirky characters. But with the fast-talking quentin tarantino that is guy Ritchie, yeah. with stuff happening out of sequence in a really confusing and basically unsatisfying way the jumping around of the timeline and the details that are withheld from the audience don't make it satisfying really when they appear my feeling on this film was it could have been quite good if they had simplified it and made some of the twists and turns more background rather than uh, waiting to be revealed yeah exactly they hold a lot back from you and it, it doesn't really entreat you to try and figure it out because you can't really you have to wait for everything to be spoon fed to you and you i know you hate that phil you said that about was it the girl on the train i didn't like the fact that the whole mystery element to it was basically would she remember bits or not yeah and it's kind of up to the writer or the the director when you find out those pieces of information exactly but that said i also thought the way the film opens a sort of gives everything away anyway. So it's kind of both at the same time. It's keeping all its cards close to its chest but and then revealing it all at the end. But if you even spend a couple of minutes thinking about the first scene rather than forgetting it as they want you to, you can forget everything out. So do you know what I mean? It's just not well spread and not well sort of paced. It's a bit like if a poker player holds back his cards really tightly, but then he's smiling oh, no, the no. whole so time. When he, it's like when he picks them up, you can see them all and then flips them over. <laughs> and then you can't, he doesn't show you. And then he's you. sort of smiling. <laughs> yeah, oh, exactly. oh, I'm going to win. I'm going to win. But it's just so, I think it's just messy. And I think the dialogue is poor, but I got to credit the two lead performances. And I think the direction is quite good. I, I don't know how much say Paul McGuigan had over the structure and the editing and the dialogue. It may well be that someone snuck in and thought we can make this the next Tarantino or whatever. And, messed it all up for my feeling i think if they just literally came in and said oh we'll just tell a straightforward story with some interesting 
situations rather than making everything connected and everything having a backstory and a past and this mm. and that tying yeah, yeah. together just have it sort of be isolated and a bit more separate but intriguing yeah sure I, but on the whole i mean it's not unenjoyable i think if you think of it as a oh i quite be interested in a, a fairly light-hearted crime sort of caper with a bit of humor you should know it's a bit darker than you think and also it is more confusing than you think and i wasn't a massive fan of bane kingsley no he wasn't good i didn't think I... morgan freeman was very good either I kind of want to say I don't think he's a very good actor. Well, you can't say that, Phil. He was Gandhi. And, <laughs> oh, so you can't touch Gandhi? <laughs> no, you can't. You can't go near Gandhi. I mean, that's how he got his knighthood, surely. Okay, <laughs> right. That's it. So for me, the film gets a, mm, I won't say B-, minus because I really did like Josh Hartnett. I think that's fair. There we go. Should I do mine? Stranger Than Fiction? Yes, do it. Stranger Than Fiction. Excuse me. Excuse me. Are you Miss Eiffel? Yes. Am I interrupted? Yes. <laughs> the assistant your publisher's hired. The publishers think I have writer's block. Do you have writer's block? I don't know how to kill Harold Crick. This is a story about a man named Harold Crick. Harold lived a life of solitude. He would walk home alone. He would eat alone. When others' minds would fantasize about their upcoming day... Hello? Harold just counted brush strokes. All right, who just said a herald just counted brush strokes? Dave, I'm being followed. How are you being followed? You're not moving. It's by a woman's voice. She's narrating. Oh. Harold couldn't concentrate on his work. I can't think while you're talking. You have a voice speaking to you. About me, accurately, and with a better vocabulary. Harold found himself exasperated. Shut up! Cursing the heavens in futility. No, I'm not. I'm cursing you, you stupid voice. So shut up and leave me alone. So you're the young gentleman who called me about the narrator. The thing to determine conclusively is whether you're in a comedy or a tragedy. Have you met anyone recently who might loathe the very core of you? I'm an IRS agent. Get bent, tax man! Everyone hates me. Well, that sounds like a comedy. Have you written anything new today? Figured out how to kill Harold Crick. Little did he know that events had been set in motion that would lead to his imminent death. What? Why? Hello? Come on! This woman, Karen Eiffel, one of my favorite authors. That's her. That's the voice. She's the narrator. Karen Eiffel, my name is Harold Crick. I believe you're writing a story about me. Is this a joke? You have to understand that this isn't a story to me, it's my life. I want to live. I need to speak to Karen Eiffel. I'm one of her characters. I'm sorry? I'm in her new book, and she's going to kill me. How exciting is that? Stranger Than Fictions, I'm just going to ignore that. Stranger Than Fiction, <laughs> listeners, is uh, middle of the 2000s, I think, I believe. Film starring Will Ferrell and it also stars Emma Thompson, Queen Latifah. It's got Maggie Gyllenhaal and it's also got Dustin Hoffman in there as well. Mm. Will Ferrell plays a very boring man. He's guy, a guy who works for the tax tax man. He's an IRS, IRS ag- yep. agent who goes and investigates people and audits them. And 
he uh, is very routine in what he does in his life. He brushes his teeth an equal number of times on each side and counts them out. He goes to bed alone and he wakes up alone. He takes the same bus every single I mean, day. You're just repeating Emma Thompson's brilliant dialogue there, Phil. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ignore you until you say something constructive. Just well, that was constructive. It was a let's move on. Come yeah, on. I am. But he's basically a boring man until he suddenly starts hearing Emma Thompson's authorial voice. I made a word there. Uh, booming from the heavens, de- describing what he's going about in his day-to-day life. And it's sort of pursuing him as he goes about his day-to-day business. And suddenly it starts unsettling him and he's sort of wondering, am I am I crazy? Is this dictating what I do or is it just responding to what I do? How do I escape this sort of thing? What's going on? How do I make sense of this? And then uh, in the various processes of his day-to-day life, he then eventually goes and talks to a literary professor. <laughs> A literary professor who is played by Dustin Hoffman, yeah. who says, it depends what story you're in. It, if you're in a sad story, then you're going to end up with this. If you're in a comedy, then... Yeah. And basically, he starts realising that actually maybe the story which is being told about his life mm. is not heading to a good point. There we are, indeed. Listeners, I think this is equivalent to uh, Jim Carrey's Truman Show in relation to... Let me finish, Laurie, before you roll I your eyes. I didn't say anything. Come it's, on, it's like you expression. rolled your eyes so loudly, I couldn't ignore it. <laughs> This is the equivalent of Jim Carrey's Truman Show, but for Will Ferrell. So relative to his career, this is his more serious side, his more nuanced, more controlled comedy uh, talents being applied to a serious role. Sure. I think he's really good in it and he's very controlled and careful and he's quite charming and gentle in uh, a rather bland character. He makes him feel sympathetic Mm. and endearing and I think the heart of this film is Will Ferrell and Maggie Gyllenhaal's sort of tense relationship uh, which evolves quite nicely over the course of the film. I think that is really good. The rest of the casting, I would say, is pretty poor and that's where... Emma Thompson, Dustin Hoffman, legends. Yeah, unfortunately, they're just not very good. They're miscast. Emma Thompson plays this really awful, sort of nervous wreck of a character who is writing this story about Harold Crick, who just seems so annoying. She can't seem to finish her book. She doesn't know how to end it. Uh, She wants to kill off her main character, but she's wondering, how should I do it? I'll go to a hospital, to a morgue or whatever, and find out how other people died. And Queen Latifah's her agent who's trying to encourage her to sort of finish this book. But she, again, is a bit of a waste of a character. And then worst of all, I'd say, is Dustin Hoffman, who plays his uh, professor character with so much apathy and so much uninterest that you feel uninterested in what's happening as well, which is a real shame because you've got a framework for a really nice idea for a story, a character who is having his world narrated, which I think is very relatable. I think most people live in a world where they have an inner dialogue, their little brain voice Mm -hmm. saying what they're doing, and they sort of wonder, am I in a movie? I think that's partly why Truman Show was so successful. Sure, But Stranger Than Fiction, I think, is taking that similar idea but making it a bit more interesting. But by adding the idea of literary conventions, what story am I in... I think it kind of destroys it. It makes it a bit silly. In fact, I think the whole character of an author who is the narrator of Harold Crick's life ruins the premise of the movie. It's if you were told what you're doing, if you're being dictated to about what your life is, does that change what your life would become? Mm-hmm. Is a more interesting question than can I survive? Can I make it through to the end without having my life being uh, destroyed? I think it's just it poses it. It frames the film in the wrong direction and then you've got boring characters that flesh out that direction. I'd much prefer to stick with Harold Crick and find him rediscovering different life passions and and changing his whole world 
and what that has an effect, how that affects his attitude to life. That's a more interesting idea. That's a sort of Groundhog Day-esque idea. High concept, but comedy in it. And I and I think the film is very nice and pleasant, and I'd give it probably a B. Right. I enjoy it. I really enjoy it. There's the, there's one particular line which I think is lovely to do with flowers, which I just think is a really nice idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just wastes its potential, I think. And Dustin Hoffman is so annoying. Emma Thompson is so out of form. It's just a very odd film, but there's more to it than most films so i think it's worth your time listeners i haven't said anything about the film i mean i think dustin hoffman thinks he's in a different film basically i get that impression about him a lot i think he thinks it's better than it is and so he gives it a strangely annoying obnoxious performance do you agree with that what like he's trying to be the the best actor in the film well, but he's in the wrong he, film he, he just shouldn't be doing it. it's just not how you play that role basically listeners i don't i mean i disagree with everything phil said i think this is pretentious rubbish but it's not even that pretentious i think it's it's almost like a self-help film uh, that's incredibly shallow it doesn't even have the courage to do what it says it's doing is my main thing i don't think it, i don't think it has anything insightful to say about anything other than for you to reach around and pat yourself on the back um i just don't like it i, I think it's nice i wouldn't say anything more than that i think it's quite nice but i think it's annoying the direction they go well emma thompson like in what world would anyone ever read that book like i just there's nothing i just everything about it is twee it sounds like a business fable and Ah, they're the worst. So I, I just, I just loathe it. I think it's really just turgid and unenjoyable. I'll agree with you about Will Ferrell. I like him, and I, I'd be interested to see him do a more serious role again. Um, this wasn't the right film. I, I think it's a terrible film. Could have been the right film. Mm, I don't think so. I think like it's just, it's lame. It's like, huh, hey, what if? I could hear the author who's writing my story because I'm definitely interesting enough to have one of those. No, but I don't think it's about that. I think it's, I'm not interesting, but like what Benjamin am I going to do with it? It's the same sort of thing. It's and you dumb, know how I feel about Benjamin Button. A dumb, dramatic contrast. You don't like Benjamin Button. I do. I you like it's... it because you heard the director convince you that he actually had something in his head when he made no, it. No, it made me re- reframe the whole film and I saw it in a different way and I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, I enjoyed it a lot sorry. more. Let's stop that. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Listeners, get your thoughts. I'm going to do it. Listeners, get your thoughts in. Agree with me, please, and disagree with Laurie because he's so mean and so ev- or everyone who likes secret life of Walter Mitty will like this film put it like that <laughs> you're so I might, tell me I'm not wrong about that they're I very there's, similar films there's similar sort of elements to it I can I, admit I might not be completely right about it but I don't like either of those films I suspect most you're people consistent. will like I'll both. give you that I'll give you that yeah, so you listeners if you don't like Walter Mitty but like Stranger Than Fiction then do get in touch we'd like to hear from you or if you've got any thoughts on any of the films we reviewed do send in your thoughts give us plus ones and minus, minus ones if you agree with us or disagree with us and we'd love to hear from you, superbaileybrace at gmail.com, or you can tweet us at superbaileybrace. Should we go on to emails? Yes. I mean, Phil, this week you actually brought a, a computer with you, which means you yourself have a screen in front, and you accuse, I mean, you accuse me of being Mr. Know-it-all, but really it's all just me reading off a screen. How do you think you fared with a screen in front of you this week? It's harder to do it than I realised mm. to make it flow, yeah. but um, there you go. It was particularly because of the Swedish names, which I was not You got Flomax there, you did. But fortunately, in this case, it means you can do some emails, finally. Hooray. Does that mean you're going to do the email song? Shall I? Indeed. Yes. All right. E- emails, e- emails from the listeners. I've done this song before. I've just realised. <laughs> yeah. There it is. <laughs> I knew it came from somewhere. That is so funny. I thought this is far too grand. No, that's embarrassing. All right. Yeah, hit us with some. Thank you very much for getting in touch, listeners, by the way. 
Right, listeners, we have one here from Nicholas. He says, hello, Super Baby Bros in movie land. What a pleasure it was to be back in the universe of Kingsman last week with its vibrant sequel, The Golden Circle. Thanks very much for getting in touch. Hoping to be entertained by its action and fast editing, I wasn't disappointed. The movie definitely aims bigger with its action and by introducing the American agency, The Statesman, shining with their own weaponry and uniqueness. The returning cast is, for the most part, welcome. Julianne Moore is great in her role as the main villain, despite not doing that much. But where the movie doesn't really reach the heights of the first is in its less sharp script and ambiguous message still fun but a bit disappointing bonus elton john gets the crown for best cameo of the year so far mm, how interesting. are you gonna bleep out that name if you don't want to put it in no it's fine i mean if people have got this far into the show they've probably seen it already uh well nicholas i'm really glad you enjoyed kingsman i don't know that i would call it vibrantness i mean actually no that's not fair it's it definitely, definitely got some energy. flair it's got yeah. a flair and energy i think julianne moore was a bit wasted and um, there wasn't enough backstory i think it was too loaded with treasures and treats that it didn't make a cohesive story yeah and i'm not sure i'd say that it aims bigger with its action either i think it aims different because if you remember the first film that had a really quite a big scene towards the end, featuring that entire underground base and um, the the henchman fight with the the lady with the blades. Yeah, and actually there was nothing really on a par with that in this one. It was a bit more localized. I actually came away thinking that the uh, the Silver Circle, Secret Circle, <laughs> Golden Circle felt like a smaller film. Actually, I think that's the feeling I got from it because the scope even the, was a lot smaller, wasn't it? Yeah, the locations. I don't know whether you noticed it, Nicholas, but they they sort of did a trick there by. Um, not really using locations. So well, I don't want to spoil anything, but basically you don't go back to the locations of the first film, really, and the new locations they have, they barely use them because they have the scene in the Statesman uh, whiskey distillery, right? And then quickly you only see it as a white room which is much, much cheaper to film. And the same thing with poppies as well, as you get the same sort of establishing shots. You and get the diner. Yeah, and you, and you only get two things, a diner and a theatre hall, right? And so, then also you've got a sequence which is in the snow, which they just basically go to a shed. Yeah, and there's a lot of CGI there as well. So I, I think, Nicholas, actually, I didn't think it was bigger, but that's interesting that it came across that way to you, which is probably what they were going for. Anyway, he's got a bit more here, so shall oh, I read on? Sorry. Also in the cinema, cinema, I dare you to watch Mother from Darinowski. <laughs> yes. Darren Aronofsky. He's called him Darinowski sh- Nice. Yeah, I'm sure many people are looking forward to hearing your reactions about the controversial movie. However, don't expect a comedy like Airplane. Now, I personally have avoided Mother because, mm. and I know you have as well, Laurie, <laughs> I don't think it's that interesting. Yeah, I mean, Nicholas, I've got the email in front of me as well. Very well read, Phil. And I, I really appreciate the fact that you've put inverted commas around the word controversial because that is where you and I certainly agree. I've avoided it because, in my opinion, and I've said this to you already, Phil, is this too provocative? I don't know. Uh, I think it's like the heat magazine of the film world. You know, I, I it's one of the things I've never been able to understand, but there are TV shows like Big Brother or whatever, or even just soaps that are manufactured to create drama so that people will go home and talk about <gasps> it and say, oh, I did cannot believe that? that she did that to him. I can't believe she said that to him. And that's what goes on Twitter. And like we've all got no trouble saying, that's fine, that's entertainment, but it's not highbrow, it's not kind of clever, it's sort of, ba- in fact, it's right down at the bottom floor. I just think that's what Darren Aronofsky's done, but on the cinema he's created a film that is so like oh i can't believe how controversial this is and so kind of both meaningless and meaningful i almost can't be bothered i I don't care and is that bad phil i don't know 
I don't know, the way that people react to it and have been sort of saying how outrageous it is, the fact that Darren Aronofsky has sort of said, oh, I wanted to do something shocking. I think setting out with the aim to shock is a boring, boring film. Yeah. And also the fact that it's been the most widely distributed, like, film. It's been in loads and loads of cinemas in America. And the whole marketing is, is, have you seen Mother? Oh, you won't believe this. Yeah, you can you believe it? And there's the sort of mystery. They withheld details as well, Mm. specifically. The trailers had nothing. And it's just all sort of bizarre and trippy in the trailer. And it sort of presents a horror film, but I don't think it necessarily is a horror film. It's sort of more just kind of distasteful. And I don't know. I just think it doesn't really appeal to me. I don't really think there's really much to get your teeth into from our point of view. It's like we that can't kid, really say anything about it. You know, it. when you're at school and there's a particular child who loves to wind people up by prodding them and poking them and doing things they'll know they find annoying. And the thing that your parents tell you to do is just ignore that kid. <laughs> don't rise. And that's, don't and that's rise. what we've done to it. So, yeah, that's, but, that's my feeling. But that's very snooty of us, Phil. But I nevertheless think it's right. <laughs> so there we go. If you have seen Mother, though, and would like to send in your thoughts and have it uh, be displayed for all of the Super Bailey Bros listeners, do get in yes. touch. We'd like to hear your thoughts We're on not it. right. We haven't seen it. So what do we know, Phil? That's just my inkling that we wouldn't be able to say that much about yeah. it very yeah, interestingly. Yeah. Right, last little bit before we move on. A uh, bit of catch up with movies, plus two for Phil for the great, mysterious and tensed indie film Circle. That's mm. not The Circle, it's just Circle. As well as the orphan all over the place, The Circle. He gives it a D. <laughs> oh, ouch. I thought it'd be the worst movie of the year, but Transformers 5, The Last Jedi, is a great <laughs> lesson on how too much money is a hinder to a movie, especially in the hands of Muster Michael Bay, who accepts all possible suggestions, especially bad ones. Yes, yeah. Uh, I agree with you, Nicholas. It was just... What on earth was that film about? It wasn't there. It was, what did I say? It's like an incredibly refined commercial product because there's a segment in the film for all ages, demographics, whatever. Yeah. He says, what a mess. And a plus one for you, Laurie, there. Thanks. I'm glad it wasn't as successful as previous ones. I think it's interesting that they've all kind of bailed on the franchise now. Yeah, it's um, it's not performed as well. It's still made a lot of money, but it's nowhere near the billion dollars or whatever it was of the last couple. Nicholas goes on, The Fugitive was a good watch, still holds on well. The picture perfect scene was fun. Thank you very much to Oh us yeah, both. that was the, the pipe and the dam scene. I'm glad you enjoyed it, yeah. Thanks for the recommendation. Finally, I recommend you guys go watch a Silent Voice, one of the most beautiful Japanese animes I've ever seen. I don't think I've ever seen the themes of bullying and depression addressed in such a delicate and beautiful way. And he gives us a little link to try and check it out. Great. Yeah, I'd be really interested to uh, to watch that. A Silent Voice, we'll check it out. And lastly, just wrapping up, finally, stay proud of who you are. Super Bailey Bros <laughs> is such a unique title compared to all the bland movie land stuff. Right, right. So much from your 8-bit branding comes from that title. I'm sure everyone loves your jingles. Always so vibrant and refreshing. Uh, Keep up the fantastic work and stay faithful to who you are, Nicholas. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much, Nicholas, especially for being so kind about the uh, the 8-bit stuff. Um, as I think I said last week, I, unfortunately, I have to disagree that it makes us unique because I know it feels that way compared to some of the big podcasts and the top 10 lists. But down here with the rest of us, you know, fighting the sort of middle ground, there are a lot of people who do very, very, very similar things in terms of their branding. And I think what I'm really getting from all you guys, and maybe this sounds like marketing speak here, Phil, is that what you like about it is is me and you, Phil. So it's not that it's the Super Belly Bros. You guys are the Super Belly Bros. Don't change who you are. That's what people keep telling us. Don't change who you are. And so what my hope would be is that... The name would change, but nothing else would. Yeah, no, we'd still be the same. And we aren't who we are because of calling ourselves the Super Belly Bros. If we were Laurie and Phil, I mean, that's what we call ourselves in the show. I mean, we don't call ourselves the Super Belly Bros very often, do we? <laughs> it's just one of those things. Change is always difficult, listeners. I think we're slightly prepping them, aren't we, to change to movie land. But Well, I don't know. I don't know whether it will be movie land, but certainly... I, I just, th- and, it, and it maybe it sounds very selfish of me, but I kind of think 
when I'm having meetings with producers every now and again, I, I'd like to be able to say, <laughs> you know, oh, I do the film show with Laurie and Phil or something like that. It's quite a different pro- proposition than saying, I'm one of the Super Lady Bros. <laughs> um, and maybe I'm completely wrong about that. And I understand a lot of people will think, no, no, no. But, you know, that's because you guys are bought in and I love that, but not everyone else is. So, oh. Wait and see, listeners. Wait and see. I need to stop talking, really. Okay. Thanks very much, Nicholas. Great email. Got one here from Gav who says, hey, you McGregor can act. He just doesn't very often. <laughs> Oh, yeah, this is, uh, I don't know, a few weeks ago now, I was telling you I was nervous because when I said to myself, well, he's not very good in this, but he's good in dot, 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 couldn't think of a film, I started to worry that he might not be great. Gavin says, I think he's suited to a particular sphere of the cinematic world, which I guess is quite indie, real world and low key. What films would those be? Check out Shallow Grave, Brastoff and Little Voices, for example. Now, you know, Brastoff, I will agree with you on, Gav. Have you seen that, Phil? No, I haven't. I really rate Brastoff. Uh, it's good. It's a uh, sort of working class uh, coal miners drama about a, a band. It's really, it's great fun. Yeah. What's uh, Ewan McGregor like in that? I honestly can't remember him, so <laughs> like at least, fades at, into the background. At least I didn't think he was bad in it, uh, but yeah. He isn't suited, Gavin continues, to massive blockbusters, and he was rubbish as Obi-Wan. Sorry, Phil. No, mm. I'm not accepting the apology. I disagree. He was, he, was, he was probably one of the better parts, I think. It looks like he's back, doesn't it, for the Obi-Wan prequel as well. Oh, really? I didn't I know th- that. I thought uh, that, that had been rumoured or nearly confirmed that Ooh, he was returning. Watch that so. space. Be interesting to see what he does in another director's hands. Well, Gavin's going to be disappointed because he said he was more wooden than Treebeard, though he almost won me over in episode three. I disagree. I think if you look at the talent on offer from those films, you've got Hayden Christensen, who is a good actor in some Can roles. Can be really good, yeah. Natalie Portman, who you saw in Jackie and said was fantastic. She's wonderful in Jackie. Ewan McGregor, he always has promise. I think it has to be down to bad direction that they it's were bad all flat. bad script, for sure. They, yeah. It was bad script, and I think George Lucas has a nice clout as a director that he just flattened their performance. He sort of controlled it, didn't he? Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see. Anyway, thanks very much, and Gavin. trust me, Gav, I would like to like him. I, I like Ewan McGregor. I, he's a great screen presence, and I always enjoy watching him. My fear is that, you know, can I think of a great performance? I don't know. I'll check out those other films you mentioned. Thanks very much, Gavin. Last email here. This is from Joshua couple of things he says maybe we could do a movie court on the film ai that's a deep deep cut isn't it <laughs> is it a film ai or ai as a general concept i think it's on the film ai with uh hayley joel What's i think you know where you stand on uh, yeah yeah, AI. yeah. Well, I, I still think the reason i know i'm onto something is because i get you every time you laugh because you realize there's nothing to be said <laughs> it's kind of true my problem with ai films and the question of artificial intelligence is and that, robots in general yeah people don't have anything interesting to do with them if the film is about them either it's oh they're going to kill us or mm, should we sleep with them or not and i got <laughs> like no one has anything more to say than that's, that that's the only scope and you, like, and that, you were right you can agree with me a little bit don't you Phil yeah it's I do I'm sad it about all. it but yeah. I think if you distill it down I mean X Machina did both so. yeah <laughs> get, get them both yeah, uh, yeah. well they're interesting movie court is something we haven't done in a long time yeah dig it up from the grave I'd say mm. what about uh, our movie love here subtle running jokes the seatbelt gag in My Blue Heaven, always, always funny. Trying to get out of the car, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yep, Harry reading the last page of his books and uh, referencing that in uh, When Harry Met Sally. I don't recall that being a running gag, but yeah, okay. And then, of course, Ned, Ned Ryerson oh, from yeah. Groundhog Day. That's Pretty brilliant. much anything in that film is a running gag, though, isn't it? That's it's like brilliant. a series of running gags. Yeah, that's true. Uh, running gags are great. When they work really well, I mean, the obvious one is Back to the Future is full of those uh, across three films. The Manure, I hate Manure. Brilliant. Uh, I think it's great when they don't draw massive amounts of attention to it it's just kind of there it's like the perfect kind of easter egg it's not like so in your face that it dominates in a kind of wink wink way but it's not so far in the background that you'll miss it 
it's just funny yeah all right let's do that that'd be good to look into listeners send those in because the thing that takes the time is coming up with the examples and then here is the last little bit about cgi that joshua says he says dark crystal explains why cgi is rubbish okay one of the most astonishing practical effect films i have ever seen makes the slightly weird fantasy plot totally forgivable <laughs> have you seen this film i haven't seen it at <laughs> yeah, all. i have i saw it over christmas actually you should watch it phil and now well joshua i don't know whether to agree or disagree with you on this one because i thought it was weird <laughs> like it's definitely an impressive feat of puppeteering but the overall experience is what on earth am i watching mm, he says what happened to creativity and imagination like jim henson and frank oz i guess that's the puppets bit yeah even the data stuff is better for being dated like the creepy transposed animated bats and the brilliantly shot chasm of doom so much better than anything marvel or disney oh wait they're the same have ever done yeah. nice, little, oh, there. nice <laughs> little cynical uh, pun in the middle well what would i say i think we talked about this with alien didn't we a little bit and it was interesting comparing alien covenant with the original because alien covenant has very similar sort of beats but the monster's not very scary and we kind of thought that had something to do with cgi if not everything the major benefit of having a practical effect or a puppet in there is that it is present in on set and so the lighting is immediately natural it blends in in a way that cgi just can't ever do it and the more hd we get the harder that is for cgi to do when it's within a practical set that kind of thing and it just it must create a more visceral reaction from the performers i mean that's why when uh, they're doing green screen work they have people either dressed up in a green silly suit with a rubber head you know a silver orb or whatever yeah or the tennis ball thing it's because they we have to they have to have something and kind of the more you give them to work with the more they're gonna be able to perform and i think you know just listen to ewan mcgregor our old friend talking on the extras of attack of the clones whatever it is and he he describes it as a nightmare doesn't he working with uh, cgi and green screen ian McEwen, uh not ian McEwen, ian uh what's his name mckellen from mckellen yeah, yeah he had like a like an emotional breakdown because he was stuck in this like sea of green screen and really is that true what during the hobbit he sort of said well i'm a, I'm a trained actor this isn't what i thought acting was or something well like that. there you go right so and i think it, it yeah i that's my major thing is it gives you a presence but then dark crystal is all puppets so you know if you want to see another practical film listeners uh, that really really banks on that technique which is a bit more modern check out the hellboy films because uh, oh right yeah uh, guillermo del toro and also with pan's labyrinth as well and even pacific rim he's a massive massive fan of authentic practical effects that really uh, deliver on what real life stuff special effects that are done on camera he really really rates and some of them i think are really there's some sort of magic to them other of them i think mm, it just looks a bit tacky and rubbery interesting well let's know your thoughts listeners thank you very much for reading emails out phil do you enjoy that <sighs> pretty exhausting man. Do you think it's it a lot is? of pressure to get it right you have to really think you have to look a few words ahead to keep it natural <laughs> and i it. felt tough. like i didn't really deliver the words in the way that they wrote phil, them oh, you did a great tough. job anyway, i'm sure our listeners will say so apologies listeners if you felt like i didn't read it out no well. it was great two short tweets alistair also saw kingsman uh, the golden circle tonight and he says loved it easily as good as the first vaughn is a unique and original director bond watch out oh that's interesting um i think I don't think it will ever compete with James Bond. Yeah, I Bond. don't think I don't think Craig is. If anything, I think they'll use Matthew Vaughan to do the new James Bond. He's a good director, isn't he? I I've very rarely seen him do anything bad. I think he always does half-baked films. Do you think so? Always. I, I like think Stardust. Stardust is probably his best film. I, I don't think you can call Kingsman the first one a half-baked film. I think it had a complete vision. It, I just it, didn't really like it. You know, some parts of it that just didn't feel properly thought through. Okay. It, it always feels like there needs another 
another coat of gloss or something to make it finished and refined. Because he was a producer on Lockstock, so he began under Guy Ritchie's Titanic Shadow, of course. But, but now he's uh, very much bigger, I'd say. Oh, definitely. More competent, I think, on the whole. Sorry, Guy. And then Esther got in touch. And what I love about this tweet, Phil, the most is that underneath, Twitter has helpfully put translate from French with a question mark. And it's because she writes, at Super Bailey Bros, plus one Phil, minus one Laurie, Ratatouille is fab. Hey! <laughs> so, well, I'm glad you like Ratatouille. Bonjour! I'd like yes. to see what happens when oui, I oui. translate it from French. Uh, oh, it says, could not translate tweets. <laughs> Strange. Uh, right, listeners, thanks so much for being in touch this week. I always hate saying that because when I hear it, it rhymes. Thanks so much for being in touch. It's something that annoys me. You about know, it. one of our listeners got in touch and said that we did a little bit of a song lyric or something. Oh, that's right. They did. You're right, Phil. I completely missed that. Uh, let me scroll down and find that. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is actually Phil. I can't believe I missed it. It's our old pal David Samuel got in touch. David Samuel. Hello, uh, David Samuel. David, but he didn't. It was a very, very short one because he no just picture? said. Uh, no, 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 no picture. Not even a picture attached this week, Phil. David, get back in touch. We haven't heard from you for a long time, apart from this. And he said, uh, "Super Bailey Bros." Accidental song lyrics, shrouded in mystery, a hidden piece of history. It <laughs> 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 sounds more like a Disney song. Lyric. That was me, wasn't shrouded it? Shrouded in mystery. The thing with that, uh, David, was that as I said it, I knew how it sounded. And I thought, that's a bit much, isn't it? And to the point where when I was coming back to edit it, I thought I probably repeated myself, but I didn't. And so one of those weird things that actually work quite well. I flip and love it when uh, TV shows or films have a bit which <laughs> rhymes. What's that, what's that one? There's that a bit in The Walking, Walking Dead where uh, a character, it's a very serious moment, says, they'd said they'd leave us alone if I gave them Michonne. <laughs> And Michonne, Michonne being a character in the film, in the in the TV show, and it just suddenly it was just like this ridiculous rhyming bit in a very serious. Did scene. that get me? And then out? people did stuff on YouTube. They put like yeah. a little rap beat behind it. Leave <laughs> it alone if we gave us Michonne. That's brilliant. Uh, okay, that's it. Get in touch on superbellybros at gmail.com at superbellybros on Twitter. Thanks so much, everyone. I'll tell you what, man, my throat is starting to go again. It's been recovering slowly, but the longer I talk, the sort of raspier it gets. Are you going to need some uh, much-needed R&R from the show? Oh, that's a very good point. Nice cue in, Phil. Very subtle. <laughs> Do you want to take out the... the oh! No, 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 no that's good, that's good. Uh, <laughs> listeners, I'm going to be away for quite some time, actually. We may even have to miss three shows again. And I know we had a listener specifically say, don't ever do that again. Uh, but what can I say? There's no choice about it. And I've had so little holiday this year. You would feel for me. You would, you'd feel for me if you knew. Uh, so we are going to be around next week. That's going to be the last show for a while. And then I'm going to be away on holiday. And I'm afraid I'm just not going to be checking in. I'm going to do my absolute best, you know, for the sake of my family. <laughs> Come on, you know, feel the, feel the passion not to get sucked into emails and things. So you may just not hear from me at all. Sad, sad, sad. But they, do... they can hear from you, Phil. Oh, they I can do. hear from you. <laughs> Maybe I'll do some thought for the days or something like That'd that. That'd be nice, to, wouldn't it? bridge yeah. the gap. And maybe I'll chuck in a couple of movie reviews or something. That would be fun. That'd be cool. Okay. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for tuning in this week. Let us know your thoughts on Kingsman the Golden Circle, on Borg McEnroe, which sounds like the pick of the week to me, and then our What We've Been Watching films, Ultraviolet, if you've been unlucky to sit through that one, uh, Lucky Number Slevin, and then what was yours again, Phil? Stranger, Stranger than, than Fiction. Stranger than Rubbish. Yeah, okay. Rubbish <laughs> than, I don't know. Uh, than rubbish. Superbelly Bros at gmail.com, at Bros on Twitter. But other than that, have a really lovely week, and we'll see you then. BTFN. Bye. Phil, this is a bonus, but it also, I wonder whether we should have made it a segment on the show. You is it a this? very special bonus? What do you mean? Like, you know, when they, on TV shows, when they say, a very special episode. I suppose it could be a bit like that. There's a bit of a moral to it, maybe.
Well, no, just a sort of question, but I don't think it reveals more about me than anything else. But you know, in films, when something sort of psychedelic is happening, or that is supposed to represent like the fracturing of someone's psyche or emotional state, sort of like a drug trip. Thing. Yeah, and what you'll get is sort of like Flashing really images. rapid cuts, like uh, the only heart, like split second, but loads of them in. in like the intro of the Big Bang has this as well. Lots of very rapid fire images. Or someone's being hypnotized or sort of transformed and you get a kind of swirly, stereoscopic, uh, psychedelic... And a blurring of the perspective shot. Yeah. Do you ever... Is there a little tiny part of your mind that worries that maybe it's going to do it to you? (laughs) (laughs) What if there's a hypnotism? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you don't like... You kind of think, oh, I don't want to watch it in case the film (laughs) hypnotizes me. (laughs) Is that the dumbest thing ever? No. There's a a tiny, tiny mini kernel of sort of doubt in my mind at exactly that moment. I'm a little bit afraid of hypnotism because I think... But not actual hypnotism. No, but I think I I am because I think I genuinely am a little bit afraid of it. And maybe this is me being a little bit of a wimp, but... I often think, what happens if you're hypnotised and you don't realise you're hypnotised? What if you just well, spend the rest exactly of your life yeah. as a different person who's in the hypnosis state, so you forget your reality? And there was this whole thing, I don't know whether you were aware of it, and I don't even know whether this is apocryphal, probably someone will uh, tell me this is hashtag fake news again or something, but I seem to remember years and years ago hearing about adverts that got banned uh, by the advertising and press authority or whatever it was, because they were subliminal advertising. You know, you've heard of subliminal Yeah, advertising. yeah, they put a frame in, like from Fight Club or whatever. Yeah, but incredibly. Say, buy this product yeah that's what it is and it sticks in your mind and you think oh I will go and buy that so it's had more influence on you than you think because your brain picked it up even if you didn't take the time to recognise it whereas nowadays product placement is so obvious as to become nauseating like Apple in Kingsman right Mm. that was it was a terrible shot of Julianne Moore behind a desk did you see that where the, the laptop was the thing that was being focused on. You've got to and, make it and independent the somehow. newspapers were in there as well. Yeah, like, you've got to make it independent. But it was just, it was just annoying because it actually affected the actual camera work. Anyway, but like, so that's the complete opposite of what I'm talking about. And there's a part of me that gets worried. So there you go. Also, this is, again, maybe I should save it for another scene. Whenever there's an underwater scene, I think I might have said this on the podcast as breath. well. Hold your breath. I've got to hold your breath. When you're talking about that. Yeah, yeah hold yeah, your breath yeah, when you get the... Uh, see if you survive. <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> it's yeah. sort of the test. It, it the became with Captain Kirk in that whale scene, man. <laughs> oh, yeah, great. And forever afterwards, yeah. He holds his breath for a long time. <laughs> I don't believe William Shatner would be capable of that, especially not with those hair plugs. <sighs> maybe, maybe he's just brilliant. Maybe he's a trumpet player. Could be, could be. There you go. Yep, that seems to be the... Oh, Phil, come on. 